At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee, and he has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions. But Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him, and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time, he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that
that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. This is God's word. At the beginning of March, we started a journey with Jesus, going chronologically through the Gospels. And so we're only two weeks into that, and we have Easter now. And so what do we do with Easter? What we're going to do is we're going to take a break in our chronological study. The things that we talked about last week actually happened three years before what's going to happen this week. And so we invite you to take a three-week break with us as we focus on Easter. Pastor Henry Moy is here again. He was with us about six weeks ago. And uh, he is here to share God's Word with us. And we look forward to having you with us again. Thank you for coming, Henry. Hello, hello, hello. Okay. Good morning. So just last, oh, sorry, just last week, I had a friend who lost a child. The child was born premature, and after six months of a lot of struggle, a lot of fighting, a lot of ups and downs, and it seemed like a corner kept getting turned, uh, he passed away. And so my friend and his wife are in this state of mourning. This brave, sweet little baby His pain and his suffering is over, but my friend and his wife, their time of mourning, their time of sorrow has just begun. I had another friend who lost his job because he did the right thing at work. And then a friend of a friend this time, uh, he saw his marriage dissolve in a lawyer's office. I don't mean to start off on, on such a depressing note. Uh, in fact, I, I, I stay away from it all, every time. But it's been that kind of a week, that couple of weeks, in fact. Um, as that saying goes, when it rains, it pours. And in my circle of friends around the world, it feels like that. <laughs> with so much sad and bad news flowing back and forth. And even one of the persons, one of my friends said, life isn't always like a bowl of cherries. Or if it is, sometimes all you get is the pits. And so I, I want to ask a question. Have you ever found yourself in that place? Maybe, maybe you're there right now. Things aren't as you expected or the way you preferred. Perhaps you've been praying really hard for someone's miraculous healing and they didn't make it. Or lifelong friendships or marriages fall apart because of moral failure. And that whole time you were walking alongside them or, and you were praying with them, bathing those relationships in prayer, lifting them up to God, entrusting them and the victory to the victorious one. But tragedy and crisis still happens. Maybe you're caring for aging parents, or dealing with a life-threatening illness, or wayward children, 
This is one of those lists that indeed can go on and on in the most terrible and sad ways. In this life, there, there, there's pain, there's suffering, there's disappointment, anger, frustration, hurt. Those things are almost always a given. And you might count yourself blessed if you've never encountered these things. But it's just a matter of time. The question is how do you respond? John Piper has a, uh, an excellent book called Don't Waste Your Cancer, where he reflected on his uh, fight with cancer a number of years ago. And he had talked about how God had used it to shape and, and to nurture his faith and his character. And there's some important uh, points that are applicable there to suffering. The question comes up in that book when I was looking through it, how is God using this to refine you, to transform you more like Christ. Now, another question that may be even more pointed than this one is, have you ever felt disappointed by God? Now, this one gets a bit more personal. It gets real personal, actually. And, and I don't expect, and I'm not going to raise, ask you to raise your hands for this one, but I can share with you that <clears throat> this was an extremely challenging sermon for me to spend time on. I, I procrastinated, I confess. I, I delayed, I avoided wrestling with this one because as I f- took inventory of my own life and my experiences, there were so many instances where I would wrestle and ask this question. Now, the focus isn't about the details of my story. I'd be happy to sit down with, a, with you at a, with a cup of coffee and <clears throat> share those things and hear your story as well. But I can tell you that wrestling with those issues of disappointment, about those things uh, having to do with my own failings, about career or ministry, things that didn't go the way it was planned, of loss and rejection, fears and uncertainty, all those things brought me back to this question. And the weeks leading up to this moment, I delayed, I, I really avoided this message. Now part of my problem was that I knew what was the right theology. I knew what the Bible says. I, I knew what were the right things to say and to believe. All those instances down the line. But right thought and right theology doesn't change hearts. True transformation, genuine relationship with the Father flows from that raw, uncensored communication with God. And that's where transformation happens. Coming before the foot of the cross and being transparent with God. Just knowing it isn't enough. Knowing the right things to believe in isn't enough if that belief isn't connected with us. So the question that I struggled with wasn't just this one even. The real question was, what would I do when I felt disappointed by God? I want to give you a moment to think about a time when you experienced something similar. Your your circumstances is probably different. Your particular mindset at the time would vary. 
But in those moments, I suspect something that would be quite similar. In those moments, we put God on trial. In those moments of crisis, in those moments of depths, uh, it's been called and described as the dark night of the soul. We, in essence, do that. Now, I admit, it's a little bit silly to consider how can we put God on trial. That seems ludicrous. <laughs> we, we would seem to be taking his place. Now, you might be thinking, no, I, I, I don't do that. I didn't do that. And even into the scripture uh, passage today, we, we looked at what happened when we talked about the trial of Jesus. It's like, our very first thought must, might have been, I wasn't even there. I didn't do that. It was the Jews, or it was the Romans, or it was Pilate, or the crowds. Maybe it was Iscariot. Anyone else but me. I wasn't even there. What does this passage have to do with me? Well, on a straight-out theological level, uh, I can think of two reasons. There, there were maybe other reasons for why did this happen, but the trial of Jesus set in motion God's grand plan, his grand rescue plan. The rescue plan, the trial of Jesus revealed God's sovereign plan. In, um, I've got a couple of verses here if you want to just snap a picture of it and look at it afterwards. I invite you to do so. We don't have time to go through every one of them. But this was a sovereign plan of God. When Pilate had asked him all these questions and Jesus did not respond, he brought up a, a somewhat valid point. He said, why do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answers, you have no power over me if it was not given to you from above. In no uncertain terms, Jesus tells Pilate, he only has perceived power because there is a higher power in authority over him. Even in the most serious of situations, Jesus speaks with <laughs> multiple levels of meaning there. On the one hand, he's reminding Pilate that he himself has others over him other human superiors. But then on a whole other level, he's referring to God the Father, the one who is indeed delegating authority. God's plan is sovereign, and it's independent of the actions of humans. Even before the foundations were laid, God's plans already in set in motion. Even before Adam considered sinning, God's redemption plan was set in place. The cross was not an in-case-of-emergency plan. The second one I can think of is that the trial of Jesus provides the underpinning, the theological underpinning of substitutionary atonement. In some very literal and, and explicit terms, Jesus actually died in the place of a guilty man on the cross. Barabbas, the innocent, <laughs> the guilty, his place would have, should have been on that cross, and what had happened there? A literal swapping happened there. The innocent man died for the guilty. In the Mosaic law, the sins of the people were ceremonially placed on the scapegoat, 
And um, by the high priest each year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, literally named. And then this is done once a year, the scapegoat is released, but then it's done each year as if on repeat because this was not a lasting effect. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament was designed to show how depraved people were, not as a means of absolution. The system was designed to point to our need for a Savior. It was incomplete, not made clear until Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And so what we saw in the Old Testament system was that no animal or grain offering sacrifice can cancel out our sin. In the same way that no amount of going to church or praying, giving tithes and offerings, or being good will be enough to earn, to write off, work off your sin. You need a Savior. And that's why this had had to happen. That's why this happened in, in fact, a very, very public stage that was set for a very public death. And that is the very simple and powerful message of Easter. But to get to that point, we've got to go through the trial. Now, some say that this was an an illegal trial, that it wasn't even convened properly and without the proper procedures. If you were paid attention very closely to the scripture reading, you'll even notice that uh, the Jewish leaders, when they uh, threw out those charges, there were embellishments there. It wasn't exactly what had happened. And even when they questioned Jesus, what did Jesus say? It is, I find it fascinating, and for some reason I never really picked up on it until this study. He, the way he responds is, 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 you say this is. He never ever at once just said, I am. Both times he does this in a very peculiar, and I find it so, 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 so cunningly. So in some ways, you can say that this, was, this is a, an, an illegal trial. His, his, his proper words were not represented. His position was not presented. I'm certainly not a legal expert, and if you know my family, you know that I'm not even the legal expert in my family. But what I'm going to do here is um, I want to spend our remaining time to look at uh, some of the responses of the main actors going on in this passage. And I'd like to walk us through, to let us see how they, too, put Jesus on trial. So, the format will be like this. The blank versus Jesus. Okay? First one, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the high priest. <clears throat> now here it's not hard to figure out what might be going on in the heart's and the minds of the Jewish people. Throughout the Gospels, we see them trying to undermine Jesus. So they saw Jesus as a threat to their status and position in society. Jesus was a disruptor of the status quo, and in particular, their status quo. He jeopardized their credibility. And so when Jesus became more and more popular, they expected one of two things to happen. Either he would fall in line or he would fall off the scene, one or the other. So the question is, 
after looking at their response. Have you ever put Jesus on trial because his teaching threatened your status quo? Our next actor on stage, Herod. For Herod, he was, uh, he was curious, and he wanted to see a sign performed. This is the passage that was read earlier. And this one, I, I was drawn to, the, to the, the description that he wa- he'd heard about Jesus, and he wanted to just find out for himself. So what did he want to do? He didn't want to know Jesus. He wanted to see a sign. Something happened. And it's a little irreverent, but this was the way I started to think of what Herod's interaction with Jesus was like. This is one of those accordion monkeys. Uh, when, you, when you play and you throw peanuts at that they perform. So the idea was to perform on demand. And so when that wasn't happening, when, 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 uh, when he didn't do that, he sent him back to Pilate. But for Herod, his main thing, at one point he might have felt a little bit threatened, and he might have thought, this Jesus might be a threat to my power base. But when he saw nothing happening, he sent him back. And so the question would be, have you ever put Jesus on trial because Jesus didn't perform on demand? He sends him back to Pilate. So Pilate versus Jesus. This one we mentioned about the uh, questioning and the silence. Now, Pilate, he was a Roman governor. He wasn't Jewish. He wasn't really too concerned about the things that concerned the Jewish leaders or Herod. He didn't necessarily have anything against Jesus. What he thought about Jesus was that he was becoming a bit of a political inconvenience. He asked the question, basically, why why are you in front of me? Why, Why do I have to deal with you? Jesus was beginning to make things uncomfortable. So the question posed with Pilate is, have you ever put Jesus on trial because Jesus made things uncomfortable or inconvenient for you? Next, we have the crowds. And in parentheses, I also put Judas there. Now, I put them together because mainly their perspectives seem quite similar. The crowd shouted, give us Barabbas. Now, what would drive some seemingly rational people to choose a murderer over someone purportedly to be healing people, raising the dead, uh, doing miracles? Didn't seem to make sense. Well, the crowds and Judas, they didn't see Jesus their image of a Messiah. Now keep in mind, there had been uh, quite a few Messiahs that had been cropping up during this time in Jewish history. There was the rebels at the famous Battle of Masada, and numerous uh, uprisings and rebellions had popped up against the Romans during this time in Palestine. And so the popular image, popular concept of a Messiah was a revolutionary, was a fighter, someone who uh, would win their freedom. 
And so when it seemed like Jesus wasn't doing these things, that began to have a problem for them. It, it, it was an itch for them. And in fact, in their eyes, they thought, well, Jesus didn't seem to be doing anything. At least this Barabbas, this guy, he, he tried to do something. Well, he obviously failed because he got arrested, but at least he tried, and, and for the crowds, maybe some points were scored for them at that point. Understanding Jew, uh, Judas in this way, I think, begins to make more sense of his final moments. See, if he was just there for the money, then he should have just kept the 30 pieces of silver, right? Instead, if we look into his account, I didn't have that one here. If you look into his account, he goes back, he throws the money at the Jewish leaders when he realizes that he had made a terrible mistake and that he, in essence, sent an innocent man to his death. He would have just kept it if he was just in it for the money. So something more is happening here. So if indeed Judas Iscariot, this man from Kiroth, Kiroth, uh, that's the literal transliteration, Ish Kiroth, Ish is man of Karoth, a little town elsewhere. If that was what it is, and if someone had rebellion in his mind and his heart, and he was hoping that uh, by getting Jesus arrested, he could force Jesus' hands and sort of usher in the new kingdom, then in his mind, he's, he's probably doing a very good thing, a very noble thing, a very important thing. Then that would be a far better explanation to what happened than just that he wanted, he was a little greedy. So both the crowds and Judas placed Jesus on trial because he, they didn't think he did the things they expected of Messiah. So the question for us is, have we ever placed Jesus on trial because Jesus didn't fit our image of, what, of God and do what we expected him? to do. One last one. Uh, I want to include into our consideration of how uh, we put Jesus on trial through the person of Peter. Uh, Peter, uh, famous in these accounts were his denials of Jesus. He, he has, in essence, a very sad account out of the uh, remaining 11 disciples. He, he was the one who stuck in, stuck around, and he, he followed Jesus. We're not told exactly why he did this, and the easy explanation could have just been, well, you know, he's very headstrong. That's one of the most common descriptors of, G, of Peter. And, and just like when, when he saw Jesus walking on water, uh, and he wanted to do it, he followed. He wanted to follow his Lord. He started to walk. But then as he began to look around and his focus left Jesus, he began to sink. Whatever his reasons, he was there. Just like all the other disciples in the boat, he took that step, the step out of the boat. Whatever his reasons were, all the other disciples weren't there, but he was there in that courtyard. When it came down to it, though, he had to decide what to do. He decided who he was. I think Peter was thinking, if I identify with Jesus at this very moment, I will most likely share in his fate. I'll die. 
And so in that fight or flight moment, he flew. He denied. Have you ever put Jesus on trial? Because your faith turns out wasn't in Jesus, but in your own self, your own ability, your own understanding. Okay, that was a lot to take in. Let's take a mental breather for a moment. I want to tell you about coaching moments. Last time, when I was here, I started to tell you a bit about what Empower Asia does. Um, we, in essence, work with young people through training, coaching, and mentoring. And uh, through that relationship-building platform, we implicitly share with them um, elements of the gospel. And last time I told you about some of the sh- uh, training uh, sessions that we, uh, and classes that we run at universities and secondary schools. And, and through those courses, we hope to give them something of use, of value. Um, but we didn't want it to stop there. We want to entice them and interest them in, uh, into further things. And in, in, in what we do is we design it with a coaching approach. Well, today I want to share with you one of the uh, fundamental things that a coaching conversation can uncover. And it's this, one, this idea of limiting beliefs. A limiting belief is, uh, are those thoughts or repeated phrases that keeps us trapped in certain behaviors or attitudes that we yearn to be free of, things that would hold us back. Um, these can be examples of these. We'll often start with these couple of words. <laughs> I could never dot, dot, dot. Um, a personal application for me for many years was to think in terms of, I could never learn to swim because I hate water up my nose. <laughs> um, another way of saying it is, uh, blank always gets in my way. Or maybe in parenting, this kid always knows how to push my buttons. <laughs> third, a third way of presenting a limiting belief is, oh, that's for other people. I, not for me, I could never do that. And so there's these extreme qualifiers usually together with limiting beliefs. And the insidious thing is that these, it's not that these are completely 100% false. What's so uh, powerful about these is there's always a little glimmer of truth or a perceived truth that makes it just seems to be enough to make you believe it. And you would seem to be able to find anecdotal evidence to support that belief. Now, it, it's, this is a very simple enough idea in, in the abstract. But what's not so simple is to actually recognizing those limiting beliefs and actually breaking free. And so what we've learned is that you can tell somebody a million times <laughs> that what they're believing right now is a limiting belief. And what they really need to do is just reject it and they'll be free you would think. But what we found is that even if you would do it to a millionth time, that one millionth plus one time, you've made no progress if the person himself or herself doesn't see it as a limiting belief. And that's where the power of a coaching conversation really comes into play. By asking powerful questions, and sometimes even tough questions, the intent is for the coachee, the person, to come to that realization on their own. When, when the Spirit of God speaks to them and opens up their mind and their heart to what that struggle is, 
That's where freedom happens. It has nothing to do with the coach or anyone else around them to talk and to say these things. When that happens, the power of that internal conviction and, and ownership is intense. It can be so transformative and, and so catalytic that nothing more needs to be said or could even be said by any teacher, any parent, any manager, or a friend about that issue or that point. And so the reason I'm telling you this and, and my hope and my prayer for you this morning is that this may be a coaching moment of breakthrough for you. That's why that I ended each one of those little subsections with that, a question. I phrased it in that way to help you to begin thinking about it. It's, it's, these questions are never accusatory. They're not directive in saying, like, this is your issue. The hope and the trust is in God's sovereignty that he would be speaking the right one for you at the right time. When it comes down to it all, um, when we're at our lowest or our most disappointed or angriest or saddest, when we feel that we're most dejected and rejected, and we question or even are at the precipice, the, the, the edge of questioning whether God is really God, and if it's really worth it to follow Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. The temptation at that point is to put Jesus on trial. The temptation is to believe in those limiting beliefs. The temptation is to be enslaved by the enemy's lies. So before Pastor Mike left, Hong Kong, uh, we had the chance to have uh, lunch together. And as we were catching up, I noticed he used uh, this pithy saying uh, a few times. And so after that lunch, I, I got a little curious on, on the origins uh, of this, uh, this phrase. And so I googled it and I found a poem in the form of a song. And I wanted to share this one with you. I've asked the uh, worship team to lead this as a song of response in, in a little bit later, but uh, I wanted to, to read this a little bit for you. For the joys and for the sorrows, the best and worst of times, for this moment, for tomorrow, for all that lies behind, fears that crowds around me, for the failure of my plans, for the dreams of all I hope to be, the truth of what I am. For this, I have Jesus. For this, I have Jesus. For this, I have Jesus. I have Jesus. For the tears that flow in secret in the broken times, for the moments of elation or the troubled mind, for all the disappointments or the sting of old regrets, all my prayers and longings that seem unanswered yet, for the weakness of my body that burdens of each day for the nights of doubt and worry when sleep has fled away, needing reassurance and the will to start again, a steely-eyed endurance, the strength to fight again. I found this to be such a powerful reminder. It's not just in the sorrow, not just in the low points that we have Jesus it's also in the joys. It's also in the heights, the high and the best of times. 
There is an all-encompassing comfort in knowing that throughout whatever life may throw at us, Jesus welcomes us. Amazingly, Jesus even welcomes us to put him on trial. The scandalous reality of God's grace is that if any one of those people that we had just looked through out on the slides there, if any one of them had repented and turned to Jesus, he would have offered them forgiveness. If any one of them would have done that. I think that would have applied to Judas too. Like, in a sense, he was halfway there. He, he, he returned the money. He, told, he confessed uh, his sin. He just didn't confess to the, the right one. He, he told the, the Jewish leaders, and they just said, this is on you. This has nothing to do with us. He was halfway there. And so the amazing thing is even putting Jesus on trial doesn't disqualify us from God's grace. If we jump ahead to after the resurrection, we'll see that uh, with Peter, Jesus patiently and lovingly restores him three times. Not to rub it in, not to belabor a point, but to allow Peter to undo his denials, to offer him restoration and reconciliation. Even putting Jesus on trial won't disqualify us from God's grace. And Jesus is still offering that same love and grace of restoration and redemption that was available to Peter and is available to us. It's not too late to repent of our selfish ways and to follow Christ's ways. There's a reason why it's called amazing grace. We can't exhaust God's grace. We're only ever a prayer, a cry, or even a whisper away from our loving Father who is ready to pour out his love and his grace on his beloved. So my friends, if you are in that valley, those dark night of the soul, when you can't even see two steps in front of you and you don't feel that you don't feel that the Lord is near. Don't run away. You might feel like you're putting Jesus on trial. Press on. Seek deeper after the Lord. All of your hurts and pains and and sufferings, all of your disappointments, failures, and moments of loss, those are the moments that Jesus died for. He gave his life for you, for your restoration, your reconciliation, for your redemption. Reject those false, limiting beliefs. Walk securely, confidently in the truth that God is for you and he wants you to place your faith, your hope, your trust in him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, your 
Your gentleness overwhelms. Overwhelms my heart, my soul. Lord, your great love and your mercy is so tender. And even in the midst of this message, in the midst of remembering and studying such horrific episodes in your life, in your earthly ministry, Lord, your love and your grace still resound so clearly. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that as you speak and minister to them, that, Lord, they would hear your, your invitation to cast their cares, their burdens upon you. They would hear and recognize your invitation and your welcome to be embraced by you. to receive from you, to be renewed by you. Lord, in those moments where we can't do anything except to look to you, Lord, we invite you to speak and to do what you so lovingly and passionately want to do, to draw us, our children, to you. Thank you, Lord. We thank you so much. Thank you, Lord. Lord, if there are things that we need to lay down before you, things we've been holding on to, we ask that you would help us to loosen our grip. Help us to trust in you with those things. Hurts, bitterness, anger, Loss. If there are things that are holding us back from having that clear communication with you, we ask that, Lord, you would help us remove those things. Wash us anew. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your tenderness, kindness, and your mercy. Thank you for your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.